bow with me, please. Thank you. Thank you, worship band, for leading us. Father, thank you for granting us this time, this opportunity to gather ourselves on this new day, this first day of a new year, and to lift up the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We pray, O Lord, that you will have us and keep us as your very own throughout the coming year. We pray that our hearts will be stayed, fixed, settled upon Jehovah. We pray that the Lord Jesus Christ will reign over our passions, our desires, that he will take every one of our thoughts captive to obedience to him. And Lord, may we shine as lights in a dark world, and may many see and come to the Lord Jesus and believe on him this year. May the believers build up and the church strengthened. We ask for all in Jesus' name. Amen. So you might think we're returning to Ephesians chapter 5 and husbands today, but we're not. What? <laughs> Instead, we're having a topical message, the title of which you see there is Sola Scriptura, which is the first of the five great solas of the Reformation, which occurred primarily and most intensely in the 1500s and the 1600s. But just to review, so you can put that sola in its place with the other four solas, let's look at a list of all five of them. So here they are, the five solas. First there is sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. That's the one we're looking at today. Then there's solus Christus, that means Christ alone. Salvation is going to be through Christ alone. Then there is sola fide, that means faith alone. Salvation is by faith alone and not by works of righteousness, which we have done. Next is sola gratia, or grace alone. Salvation is also by grace alone, by the grace of God as a free gift and not by human good deeds or religious duties. And finally, this is what it's all for, soli Deo Gloria. In all this, we want God alone to be glorified. So those are the five great solas. And I want you all to know, we're not like the only church on the planet, and we just, we're finding what we find in the Bible, and nobody else has ever looked at these things before. No, we stand in a great stream of believers who certainly went back well before their time, but certainly from that time on, we stand in that stream of those who have found these things in God's Word. So here on this first Sunday of a new year, we're going to look at that first sola scriptura because what I want to do today, if I can by the help of the Lord, is dig a hole under your feet, put in some rebar, pour a lot of concrete, and help you to stand even more firmly and more steadily on the truths of the Word of God. We want this year, we want to be a people of the book. Pastor Stan already prayed for that, and he didn't know what was coming here, but his prayer anticipated the sermon. We want to be a people, a church people, who learn from the book and love the book and revere the book, not because we're book worshipers, we're God worshipers, but it's his book, and it's his word, and in it we go to him. Through it we hear him speak. So why do we need to pour some cement and put in some rebar under our feet? Well, let me give you some, here's why we're doing this today. It's because, there could be many reasons, but here's the one I'm looking at today. Because the devil's constant, incessant, and maybe favorite temptation for humans is this, to doubt the Word of God, to not believe this Word is God's Word 
To not believe it is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient word of God. But instead to take parts out or to radically reinterpret parts so they no longer mean what the apostles meant or when the prophets meant when they wrote these things. Uh, this is one of the devil's favorite things to do. Let's interview the devil. Devil, what did you do today? Oh, I tempted humans, Christians included, not to believe God's word, but to doubt it and to turn away from it. All right, we see what you're doing, devil. This is how he started his long and successful career. We can see it in Genesis 3.1. Here it is for you. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The devil was crafty. He's sneaky, he's wily, he's slippery, and he's out for you. And he was more so than any other beast that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, and what did he say? These are the first words of the devil to a human recorded in God's word. And they are, did God actually say? That's where he started his career with humans. That's what he's about. That's where he wants to attack you, to create doubt in your mind about God's word. And then he goes on from creating doubt. Did God actually say to outright bald-faced lies? You shall not surely die. Peter's temptation reveals the same thing, Luke 22, 31 to 32. Simon, Simon, the Lord Jesus said, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat. What does that mean? Well, what do you do when you sift wheat? Well, it's a biblical metaphor. In fact, Jesus says that the last day will we'll sift the wheat, will separate the, the wheat from the chaff. So when you sift, you're separating one part that stays in your sifter from the other part that falls through. Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. What's he want to separate? You from God, you from God's word, you from, you from faith and believing God's word, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now notice what the Lord prayed. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. That's what he wants to separate you from, Peter, is your faith. But I'm praying for you that he would not succeed and that your faith would not fail. A big reason for this sermon today is that your faith would not fail in 2023 that you would keep on trusting the Word of God, believing the Word of God, following the Lord Jesus Christ. But Peter is going to have a time of weakness. He's going to deny Christ three times, even swearing on the third time, blankety-blank, I never knew that man. But then he's going to come back, and the Lord Jesus refers to that and says, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers, implied so their faith doesn't fail. When you read 1 Peter and when you read 2 Peter, that's Peter strengthening you, that your faith would not fail. Later in life, Peter, perhaps mindful of all of this, mindful of his weakness and his hour of temptation and failure to strengthen the brothers, he writes in 1 Peter 5, 8, here it is, be sober-minded, get serious about this, people, be watchful, you're like the man on the wall looking for the sign of the enemy showing up. Your adversary, you have one, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. Sometimes the roaring lion appears in clerical garb. Sometimes the roaring lion nestles up to you like a purring kitty. You have to be able to recognize, you have to be able to discern, no, 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 this is the roaring lion. And what's he doing? Seeking someone to 
devour. He wants to devour you. He wants to eat you for lunch. He wants to separate you from Jesus Christ. He wants to destroy your faith in the Word of God. He wants you to believe lies. Here's Jesus' own brief, succinct description of the devil and what he does. John 8, b He was a murderer from the beginning. Back there in the garden with Adam and Eve, he wanted to kill them, and he did. On the day that they ate of it, they died spiritually. They died to God. They died a worse death than a physical death. He's a murderer from the very beginning. And he does not stand in the truth. That's what we want to do. We want to stand in the truth this year. He doesn't stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Prior to him, there were no lies. Prior to Genesis 3, there were no lies. He is the father of them all. Every lie every utter, ever uttered by humans on the planet comes from the father, the father of lies, comes under his influence. So that's what the devil does. That's his incessant activity. He's a very busy devil. He never takes a day off. He never goes on vacation. He doesn't take a six-month sabbatical. Oh, I'm tired. I think I won't tempt people anymore. Now, he's a very busy adversary seeking you, seeking whom he may devour. So that's why, one reason why, there could be others, why we're studying bibliology today. By the way, I intended about a year and a half ago, I think it was, don't trust me on that, I'm terrible at time going back. Who's with me on that? Terrible at time, thank you. I'm glad I'm not alone in that. I mean, I'm really terrible with that. But about a year and a half ago, I thought, I'm gonna do a series. I'm gonna develop a whole series in bibliology because what we're looking at today, Sola Scriptura, is a subpoint of a large discipline called bibliology. I'm gonna do a series in that, but to do that, I've gotta figure out first because I need to be fresh on this. It's been a few years since I was in seminary, and I haven't studied bibliology in a whole, as a whole uh, since then, maybe. i got to figure out what are the best books on the planet. Pick two of them. What are the two best books I can find from a biblical, evangelical, Protestant vantage point that teach... Who are some of the instructors who, at the end of their theological career, were very distinguished, and the world said to them, you're so good, sir, you've got to write it. Please write it. And the two I discovered and the two I chose were, one, my favorite still-living theologian, John Frame, in his book, The Doctrine of the Word of God, which runs nearly 700 pages, and the other by Charles Feinberg, or was it one of his sons? See, there's Charles. I think he was the dad, and then there's two sons now, the dad I knew way back when. Anyhow, one of the Feinbergs, and his book is titled Light in a Dark Place, which will appear in a scripture we're looking at later today, and that one approached 800 pages, so I thought, I've got to read these two, it's 1,500 pages, so that I can be fresh on, so I can learn from the best I can find on the planet, so that when I expound this to people, I can say, this is what's true. Because you don't want to trust just little old me, right? So I made it through one book, but it took me quite a while because I'm reading other books. And so I thought, i got to get through the second book. It was the Feinberg book, 800 pages. So one of you very graciously offered to me, and I accepted, the use of your cabin out at um, Deep Creek Lake. So I stayed in your cabin for a week with this book. There's no Wi-Fi. There's no TV. I don't watch much TV anyway. There, there's no cell phone reception. There's nothing. It's just like squirrels outside and me inside. 
And so I made it through that book in that week, and then I took the two books that week and a big sheet of paper with a line down the middle, and I went, here's Feinberg's book on one page, teeny print, here's his whole book on one page, and then I want a line frame up where he covered that, and he, I'm going to put it up there next, so I have them covering the same things on both pages with page numbers everywhere, and then I can study and compare and feel like, okay, I really have a handle on what this is. Why am I telling you all that? Not to like, I'm, please believe me. I'm nobody. I'm not trying to impress you with anything. Anybody can read a book. But I'm trying to say to you, if you're sitting there saying, well, what does he know anyway? Is he just making this stuff up? Are we the only church on the planet? And he, he hasn't really learned from anybody else? No, not at all. I want you to know we are aligned with a great stream of biblical scholars from whom we learn, people who instruct us. We're not out there on our own little branch doing our own little thing. That's why I told you that story. So you won't wonder, why should I believe him? So you'll know you're getting the fruit of some of the very best minds on the planet. All right, bibliology, i got to keep this moving. So today we're looking at four terms. I already mentioned them. Here they are again. We're looking at, they're going to go up on the screen, inspired. We believe that God's word is inspired. We believe God's word is inerrant. There are no errors in it. There are no falsifications in it. Every word is true. We believe God's word is authoritative. It is the final source, the final authority for any religious, doctrinal, or practical issue we want to settle. Our, our judgment rests ultimately in the clear teachings of the word of God. We believe it is authoritative. And fourthly, we believe it is sufficient. That is, there's enough in there to tell you everything you need for life and godliness. You don't need the Bible and Sigmund Freud. You really don't need Sigmund Freud. You don't need the Bible and you know, whoever else you want to add. And the Word of God is sufficient to get your soul safely into heaven. Now, these four points are not just four I chose. These four are, are, have been chosen by many important theologians in our day. These are the four things we want someone to assent to when they're assenting to the right doctrines about the Word of God. We want you to understand. We want Christians everywhere to understand this book is inspired. That means God breathed. We'll see that later from the verses about it. This book is inerrant. There are no mistakes. There's no lies. There's no errors. Uh, there's no human opinions in it. It's all God's word. This book is authoritative. It settles every issue for us. And this book is sufficient for life and godliness and for how to do ministry as a church of Jesus Christ. So where do we get that? Where do we get that the, this book is inspired and errant, authoritative and sufficient? Well, I'm going to meander through a lot of passages. Now, just take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. Way more than usual. All right, so this is, this is more of a theological class and less of a sermon. It's still a sermon, but it's on the very theological end of sermon. Are you okay with that? Please say you're okay, all right? It's the first Sunday of the year. You can't complain yet. All right, so where do we get this? Well, we get it from the Old Testament, then from Jesus, then from his apostles. We'll see these various terms show up in various verses. So first to the Old Testament. This is taught... These four things are taught about the Bible in the Old Testament, primarily through the use of two words. Now, this is what I want you to understand. This isn't me making this up. This is what the best theological minds who studied this, this subject for their entire life and then committed it to paper, this is what they're telling us. And it's not just those two, it's lots of others, that in the Old Testament, there are 
two primary word groups that teach us the Bible's own view, which was Jesus Christ's own view, about itself, about the Bible. And those word groups are the word true. And when I say groups, you have the word true, and then you have other versions of it, like truthfully or whatever in English. So it's true and all its cognates, all its relatives. And the word pure and all its cognates and all its relatives. These two word groups primarily found in the Psalms and the Proverbs. So where do you find the inerrancy, the inspiration, etc., of the Bible in the Old Testament? You find it primarily in the Psalms and the Proverbs, and you're going to find it primarily in terms of these two words, true and pure. Let me give you some examples. I want you to see this. So here we're going to go to Psalm 19, a great psalm to go to if you want to learn about God's Word. Psalm 19, verse 9. The statutes of the Lord are true and righteous all together. What are they? The statutes of the Lord are true. What does true mean? It means there's no falsehood in them. It means there are no errors in them. It means there are no mistakes in them. Every word in God's book is true, says the psalmist, and therefore it is righteous. It is right with God all together. There's not mainly truth, but a little bit of error. It's not God's ideas and human words that may be very wrong and very fallible. No, the statutes of the Lord are true. This is what the Bible claims for itself. By the word statutes is meant the entirety of the Old Testament canon and will be applied by extension to the New Testament canon. So all the statutes of the Lord are true. When you hold this book in your hands, you should say, this book is true. In a world full of errors, in a world full of falsehoods, this is the solid rock upon which you can plant your feet and build your life and know it is true. Or again, Psalm 119, another great one, the entire psalm, which is this long on the Word of God. Psalm 119, verse 86, all your commands are true. Or again, Psalm 119, verse 142, your righteousness is righteous forever and your law is true. True. So we could go through many, many more of those, but that's a sampling. That's enough. You get the idea. Where do we learn about the Bible and its view of itself? What does the Bible claim about itself? In the Old Testament, we go to the Psalms and the Proverbs, and we follow this word and its relatives, the word true. The Bible claims that it speaks truth. The writers of the Bible claim that everything in the Bible is True. What about the word pure? There's a second word group we find in the Old Testament, primarily in the Psalms and the Proverbs. Well, let me give you two examples of it. Psalm 12 and verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words. How pure? What, what's it like? Give me a simile. Give me a metaphor. Like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You cook it up once. Are we done? No, that's not enough. Cook it again. You cook it up a second time. Are we done? No, not. You cook it up seven times. Is it pure? It is absolutely pure. The words of the Lord are like are pure words. What does pure mean? It means there's no error sneaking in there. There are no falsehoods. There are no lies that also appear in there. It is pure truth. It is pure God's word. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what the Bible claims about itself. This is what Jesus believed about the Bible. Again, in Psalm 19, verses 7 and 8, the law of the Lord is perfect. We, there's another word we could look at. 
reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So what you have in this book is pure. There's no dross. There's no other elements added. It's all the word of God. That's what the Bible claims about itself. Psalm 19 verses 7 and 8. So in the Old Testament, and we're moving very fast here. If you want to read the 1500 pages, I'll loan them to you. All right. But the Old Testament, its doctrine of the Bible's inerrancy is found primarily in these two word groups, true and pure, and primarily in the Psalms and the Proverbs. So I want you to know that. If you're thinking, hmm, where should I read in the Old Testament to find out about God's Word? That's where you should go. All right? Greatest scholars on the planet are agreed upon that. Those are the key passages. Those are the primary passages. This isn't just Steve and I read through my Bible and, well, I thought this one was important and I thought that one looked good. No, this is what the great scholars on the planet are telling us. These are the primary places in the Old Testament. Well, what about the New Testament? And let's go straight to the, the Lord Jesus Christ. What did Jesus Christ teach about the Word? Well, let's just go through some passages where he teaches us his doctrine of the Word of God, and let's see what, what his doctrine was. So first, Matthew 4, 4. And we read there, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, what was he referring to there? Where do we have words that proceed out of the mouth of God? He's referring to the scriptures. He's referring to the Bible. He's referring to the word of God. Jesus says, you know that Old Testament that all the Hebrews had agreed? These are the books of the Old Testament. They're the same books you have in your English New Testament. Those words, which were their Hebrew Bible in those days, Jesus says every one of those words proceeded from or out of the mouth of God. Now, God doesn't make mistakes. When God says something, it's true. When a word comes out of his mouth, there's no error, there are no mistakes, there's no lies, there's no falsifications. And Jesus says, I want you to live by every word because they proceed out of the mouth of God, which is the same thing as we're going to see a little bit later in the passage that says all scripture is God breathed. So when God speaks, he's exhaling, he's breathing. When you speak, you know, wind is coming out, right? You know that? Do you all know that? Okay, all right. I didn't know if I was the only one in the room who knew that. So air is coming out, and that's what it means God breathed. It doesn't just mean God goes, and a Bible comes out. That'd be fine, but what it really means is he's speaking, and the Bible is him speaking. The Bible is words coming out of his mouth, and that was Jesus' own view of the Bible. You say, I love Jesus. I'm just not sure about certain parts of the Old Testament. Well, you don't love Jesus enough. Because Jesus' view of the Old Testament was every word of it is from the mouth of God. You want to align your view with that of the Lord Jesus. Or again, what did Jesus teach about the word? Matthew chapter 22. He's interacting with a group of Hebrew scholars and leaders in those days. They were called the Sadducees. Their distinctive was they did not believe in the resurrection, in a bodily resurrection. So Jesus, interacting with them, says in Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine, Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken. Watch this. Not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. 
You're mistaken not knowing the Scriptures. What is the implication of that? If you just knew the Scriptures, you wouldn't be wrong. When the Scriptures teach you and you know them, you'll be right. You will not be mistaken. See, Jesus understood. If you don't know this word, you might fall into errors. You might succumb to lies. They were mistaken, not knowing the Scriptures or the power of God. So Jesus is teaching us everything in this book is true. If you know it, you're knowing truth. You will not be mistaken. You'll not be in error. Or again, John 17, 17, in Jesus' great high priestly prayer, he prays to the Father, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. There's that one word group. There it is from the Psalms and the Proverbs. Your word, see, this is Jesus' view of the word. He got it maybe from the Psalms and the Proverbs. Father, every bit of the Old Testament, your word, Jesus said, is truth. The book of Leviticus is truth. The book of Zechariah is truth. Every bit of the Old Testament is truth. So taught Jesus Christ. Or again, Matthew 5 and verse 18, a very important verse. My first year at Bible college, they made us memorize this verse and a whole lot of others, but this one was on the list. Verses about the Word of God. Matthew 5, 18, For truly I say to you, I'm reading it because this is a, I'm about five versions later than when I memorized it. And it's all a mess now. Wish we could just have the one version still, but now that's grumpy, Steve. All right, so Matthew 5, 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot. What's he talking about there? The smallest little pieces of Hebrew letters. The smallest little bits of the Hebrew alphabet. It would be like the dot over our I and the crossing over our T. And Jesus says, not one dot not one crossing of a T will pass from the law until all is accomplished. What is he saying? He's saying the, the Old Testament, the Word of God, is the Word of God right down to the dots over the eyes. Every bit of it comes from God. And it's all true and it's all sure. It's all going to be true all the way down to the last day when it will still be true. We'll find it to be all true at the last day. None of it will fail. None of it will be found to be wrong. Not one dot, not one iota will pass from the law to its accomplished. This is Jesus' view of the Old Testament. The folly of these people say, well, I love Jesus, I just don't like Leviticus. Well, Jesus loved Leviticus, every dot and every I. So if you're going to be like Christ, I'm going to be like Christ. Well, then you've got to love the Old Testament and the New, as we'll see shortly. Furthermore, in the New Testament, we would see, if we looked at it all, that Jesus treated Old Testament accounts as factual. Creation, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah, the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot, Moses, Jonah, and the fish, and on and on and on. Jesus took all of those to be factually true and spoke of them as if they were actual history. This is Jesus' view of the Bible. So your view should align with his view. That's a good place to be. When you believe the same things Jesus believes, that's a good place to be. Cornerstone Church, we want you to align your view of the Bible with that of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, I'm just going to get really, this is just happening right now, I didn't plan this, so this is dangerous. I'm just going to get really on the edge and say, if you're a member of Cornerstone Church and that is no longer your view, please tell one of your elders we need to talk. 
Because to be a member here, that needs to be your view. That needs to be your understanding of the word of God. All right, so that's the Lord Jesus in the New Testament. What about his apostles? Like, who died, Jesus, and left them in charge? Actually, it was Jesus Christ, and he did die, and he did preauthorize them before he died. Jesus preauthorized the New Testament writings of the apostles. Where? Two key and often misunderstood texts, and I want you to understand them correctly and see how in them Jesus is saying, you who are my apostles, you're going to be led to accurately write the New Testament for my people. It will also be true and pure. Where did he do that? John 14, 26 is one of them. Jesus is promising to his apostles. This is a localized promise. It has specific aspects in it that do not apply to you and me. Christians often apply this to themselves. If you apply this to yourself, you'll be claiming infallibility in a minute. You'll see what I mean. Here's what Jesus said to his apostles, localized promise. But the helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you apostles. He's not teaching you. You can't say, well, I don't need a Bible. I have the Holy Spirit teaching me all things. There's the verse. No, no, no. This is the verse to the apostles. He's going to teach you all things. So there are things they do not yet know at that point, things he has not yet taught them at that point, but Jesus is preauthorizing them. He's promising them the Holy Spirit is going to teach you all things. All things, you mean chemistry? No, all things that we need for life and godliness. All things that are the will of God. And he will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the promise looks backward from that day. Hey, you know everything Jesus has already said? The Holy Spirit is going to remind you of it all so you'll get it right when you write Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Book of Revelation, and everything in between. And he will teach you all things. You know all the things we didn't cover yet, and I'm about to send to the Father? Don't worry, I'll send the Spirit. And he's going to keep on my teaching ministry. And everything you don't have yet, he's going to give you apostles, and you will write it down, and you will get it right, as we shall see from other texts later. Again, Jesus preauthorizes the New Testament writings of the apostles in John 16, 13. When the Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you. Now, the you is not you. Don't claim it's you or you'll be claiming infallibility. You'll become a little Protestant pope. You and I are quite capable of getting things wrong. We're quite capable of errors and mistakes. Our minds are weak and the well is deep and our brains are shallow, said the Puritan pastor Richard Baxter. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you. Now, we do believe that the Holy Spirit illuminates God's word in the mind and soul of the believer, but that's not the topic here. The topic here is, watch it, he will guide you into all the truth. Everything that had not yet been revealed, he's going to guide you into all of it. Not one thing that the Lord Jesus intends will be left out. Nothing that the people of God need for life and godliness will be uncovered, not covered. No, he'll guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So Jesus, in these two passages, there are others, but these are the key ones. These are the best ones. These are the big ones. Jesus preauthorizes the New Testament writings of the apostles that they will be 
the word of God, just as the Old Testament is the word of God. Well, were the apostles conscious that they were giving out the word of God? Oh, yes, they were. So let's go now to the apostles themselves. Here's the next point. We'll put it up. The apostles of Jesus Christ clearly teach that God's word is inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient. All right, so you want to see that? Is anybody but those three people still awake? <laughs> All right, so here we go. I know this is a lot of stuff, right? I told you it's going to be more on the theological side. It's the first day of the new year. For goodness sakes, you're not tired yet. All right, hang in there. So where do the apostles clearly teach these things about God's word? Well, let's go to the Gospel of John. And at the end of the Gospel, there's a whole lot in the Gospel of John, 21 chapters. There's an awful lot taught in there. How do we know he got it all right? Well, he claims he got it all right. Where does he do that? John 21, 24. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things and we know that his testimony is, say the last word with me, true. There's that word from the Psalms and the Proverbs. There's one of the favorite two terms in the Old Testament to identify the truthful nature of the word of God. And John says, I'm going to plug that word into my epistle right here. And at the very end, I'm telling you all, every word of it is true. I'm being a faithful witness. So either you have to mark John up as a big fat liar, or he was... Somehow, you know, his head was spinning and he thought he had truth and he didn't. Or you're going to have to recognize this is the Bible's view of itself. This is how the Apostle John presents things. These words that I've written for you are true. What does Peter teach us? There's a lot from Peter on this. And the first passage is going to be big. Take a deep breath with me. Okay, you ready? Here we go. 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21. Hang in there with me. Peter claims this. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We didn't make that stuff up. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received, let's go up on the Mount of Configuration now. When he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this. Imagine if you had been there. You'd be writing with exclamation points all over it too, wouldn't you? This is what Peter's claiming. We didn't make this stuff up. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter's saying, look, what other words could I give you to convince you? We're not telling any lies here. We didn't just dream this stuff up. I didn't want to be a novelist, and now I wrote my novel, and I want you all to believe it's true. But Peter goes on, and in addition to what we witnessed on the mount and in the life of Christ, we have the prophetic word, that is the Old Testament prophets, more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. That's the title of Feinberg's book, A Light Shining in a Dark Place. 
You would do well to pay attention to it. Maybe some of you here today, let me pause and speak to you. Some of you here today have not been followers of Christ. You've not been paying attention to the Bible. You've been ignoring the Bible. You are hearing from the Apostle Peter, handpicked by the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's telling you, you would do very well to pay careful attention to the Word of God as to a lamp shining in a dark place. If you were in a dark place, and this world is a dark place, and you notice, oh, there's a lamp shining over there. Would you not be glad for the, the light from the lamp? Yes, you would be. You'd be moving toward it. So pay attention to it for how long? Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this. Now, here's what he wants you to know. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own, and then our ESV here has interpretation. Now, that's an okay translation, and who am I to question professional translators? But the word, the Greek word is epiluo. The word luo means to loose out, to release. When you put an intensifying preposition, epi, on the front of it, it means the same thing but more intensely, to really let it out, to really release it. So it's, it's luo. So it's not really someone's own interpretation, it's someone, someone's own loosing. He's saying no prophet ever loosed those words by his own will. So another Isaiah didn't sit down and say, man, I'm a, I'm a mason, I lay blocks all day, I'm tired of being a mason, I want to be a writer. I got an idea for a book, and so I'm going to write my book, and when it's all done, I'm going to put it out there in the world and see how it goes. Isaiah didn't loose it from himself. Well, then where did it come from? Read on. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And the word carried along there is a word that Dr. Luke uses in the book of Acts, where, there, where Paul was in a ship being blown by the winds in the Mediterranean, and the blown by the winds is the word here for carried along. The Holy Spirit goes, and Isaiah's pen puts down exactly the word that God intends. So this is what Peter claims for Old Testament prophecy, and by extension, as we'll see in a moment, so for New Testament prophecies. Let's look at 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. Are you staying with me? Are you staying with me in the back rows back there? Staying with me back over there? All right, getting waves in the back. They're making it. You all up here have no excuse. <laughs> 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. Peter's writing along, and then he says, Just as our beloved brother Paul... By the way, I'm glad to see at this point in life, Peter can call Paul a beloved brother. One of the last times we saw them was in the book of Galatians, and Paul says, I opposed Peter to the face. So that wasn't a great day in their relationship life. But here Peter's able to say, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, and so on, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, now notice this, as they do the other or the rest of the what? Scriptures. Peter is calling Paul's writings scripture. Now to a Hebrew, and Peter was a Hebrew, to the Hebrews, the scripture meant 
the 39 canonical books of the Old Testament. But you see, by now, Peter is already acknowledging all of Paul's books are also to be included in the canon of Scripture. They are also now known as Scripture. Peter called Paul's writings the other Scriptures. What does Paul add to our bibliology? A lot, but here's just a little bit, all right? Just a little bit. Uh, he writes in 2 Timothy 2.15. He's writing to Timothy, a pastor in Ephesus. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker, as a pastor, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. Well, what would keep him from having a need to be ashamed? Rightly handling, what's Paul call this? The word of truth. There's that Old Testament word again. What is God's word? Paul says, it's the word of truth. He uses that same phrase in Ephesians 1.13, Colossians 1.5, 2 Corinthians 6.7. The word of truth, the word of truth, the word of truth, the word of truth. And Paul says, as a pastor, you've got to work hard in the word of truth, which we now know includes all of the Old Testament and Paul's letters and anything else written by the apostles that was canonized by the church, recognized by the church to be the word of God. Let's go on. Here's one we've been waiting for, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. What else does Paul teach us? He teaches us all scripture is breathed out by God. That's a good translation. It's the Greek word theopneustos. There's going to be a quiz on the way out today. We won't let you out the door unless you say that word. All right, that's creepy. Just didn't mean that, all right? You can get out the door without that word. That's the Greek word, theopneustos. It's a compound word. The thea part is God, and the pneustos part is breathed. And so literally, it just means it's God-breathed. But it doesn't just mean God went and exhaled and it came out. That's a cool picture, like God went and out popped the book. But rather it means it came from the mouth of God when God spoke. When you speak, you're breathing out, you're ex exhaling. And when God exhaled, his word came out. This word came out. And all scripture is breathed out by God. And that's why it is therefore profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And how does it help a minister in particular? That the man of God may be complete thoroughly equipped, could be translated, for every good work. So what does a minister need to do his job well? He needs the word of God. The word of God tells him how to do his ministry, how to function as a pastor, how the church should do church. We don't get to make any of that up. We're supposed to go to the book and find out, what does he, I'm a pastor, what does he want me to do? Pastors need to major in the pastoral epistles, huh? First Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus. We need to build a biblical ecclesiology. What is the church supposed to be? So we're equipped for every good work. But the God-breathed part here is important. It, this book is inspired. That's what we mean by inspired. It is God-breathed. It is therefore inerrant. That's a corollary. God doesn't have bad breath. God doesn't need scope to clean up what's coming out of his mouth. He doesn't need... 21st century scholars who know better than God what he actually wrote. No, it's all God breathed. What does Paul say elsewhere? This is a good, this is a zinger. 1 Corinthians 14. He's been teaching and teaching and teaching for three chapters on corporate worship. And then he says, 1 Corinthians 14, 36. Or was it from you that the word of God came? 
Or are you the only ones it has reached? He had opposition in Corinth. Can you imagine that? The Apostle Paul had an opposition party in the church in Corinth. And he's speaking to them rather bluntly, I think you'd agree. Are you the only ones that has reached? And then he says this. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet, some of them did, or spiritual, some of them did, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command or the commands of the Lord. Wow, Paul, could you be more clear? What do you mean there? No, Paul says, you know what you just read from everything I just wrote you in 1 Corinthians so far? It's all the commandments of the Lord. It's not Paul's opinion. I'm not hijacking Christianity. It's none of this folly about, well, we love Jesus, but we don't like Paul. No, if you love Jesus, you got to love Paul because Paul's authorized by Jesus and empowered by the Spirit of Jesus. And then he closes with, and this is pretty cheeky, don't you think? If I said a cheeky thing like this, I'd get in trouble. So I'm glad I can just quote Paul saying something cheeky. Let him take the trouble, all right? He says, if anyone does not recognize this, well, what should we think of him? Well, he is not recognized. So if somebody comes out of the Corinthian church and says, oh, yeah, Paul, I think you're wrong over there. Paul says, and who are you? Sit down. You're not recognized. What about James? James, the half-brother of the Lord, a key figure in the early church, a man of consequence, James 1.18, he writes, Of his own will he brought us forth, that's our salvation, by the word of truth. By the what? There's that phrase again. By the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Back to one more passage from Peter. Man, you all are troopers. You've hung in there today, I think. Most of you looked like it anyway. Second Peter 1, 3, and 4. His divine power has granted to us now, you can include yourself in that us. All things that pertain to life and godliness. What do I need so I can live and be godly? He's given it all to you. Where is it? Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. You have everything you need to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ in the word of truth in the word of God, in the word that is pure, in the word that is inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient. It is sufficient. That's what Peter's saying in that passage. All right, some closing applications for you and God's word. These won't take long, so don't worry. Here's application number one. So come on, Cornerstone people. Let's be a people who love God's word. Amen? What is that thing I say once in a... You've never heard me say this, have you? When you get a new heart, what do new hearts do? They love new things. What things do new hearts love? They love God, and they love God's word, and they love God's truth. One of the criticisms Paul has, one of the evaluations he has in 2 Thessalonians of those who rejected Christ and rejected the gospel, he describes them in this way, who did not receive a love of the truth. What's that mean? When you believe on the Lord Jesus, you receive eternal life, yes, forgiveness of sins, life, but there's a whole package that comes with those, and part of that package is this. You receive what the Bible calls a love of the truth. You love it when you hear it. 
I'm not saying that means you read it 10 hours a day. You might not even know how to read. There are people on the planet who don't know how to read. You might be one of them. doesn't mean you're a good reader, but it means when you hear God's word, you go, yes, in your soul. You love the truth. So let's love God's word this year. And let's secondly receive God's word. You want to open your heart and let it in. You want to be like the good soil and the seed goes in and springs up and bears fruit, some 30-fold, there's gradations, some 60-fold, some 100-fold, but every regenerate heart bears fruit unto everlasting life. Let's receive God's word. Let's thirdly, it's about the same thing, different words, let's believe and hold fast to God's word. So there's a very good chance that sometime in 2023, if you live till the end of the year, there's a very good chance at some point the devil's going to tap you on the shoulder and say, hast God really said? There's a very good chance you're going to face temptation to move away from the word of God, to begin to doubt it, and later maybe even to deny it. No, let's believe and hold fast to God's Word. And fourthly, let's read God's Word. As many of us as can read, and now if you can't read, you don't have an excuse because you can listen to it. There's even a version of God's Word you can listen to, and the voice in it is authentically Johnny Cash. Now, come on, how cool was that? You can have Johnny Cash read you God's Word. So there's really no excuse Maybe we're not all readers, but we can, most of us, we can listen. Let me talk to you about reading God's Word in 2023. Can I just challenge you if you have not been doing this? I'm going to give you some various options here. Here's option number one. We're starting on the easy end. Read some of God's Word every day. That'd be a good commitment. It might be three verses. That's light years better than none. It might be a part of a chapter, but if you read a, commit to reading a part, I bet you'll read the whole a lot of times because it's too good and you can't stop. But as a church, can we be people who read God's Word and you at least read some of the Bible every day? Maybe attach that Bible reading time to something that happens every day. So every day, do you have lunch? So at lunchtime, your commitment is, I will read the Word first because don't wait till after you've had lunch because then you're going to fall asleep. So read the Word, then Eat your lunch. Or let's up the ante a little bit. How about committing to, if you've never done this, and if you have done it, keep doing it, committing to reading through the New Testament in a year. I didn't say the Bible. I'm going to say that next. But how about committing to, I will read through the New Testament in a year. And if you've never read through the Bible, I would recommend you do not start at Genesis. I'd recommend you start at Matthew and read through the New Testament. Then go back and read the Old Testament in light of the New but if you've never read right through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Revelation, that would be a wonderful thing to do this year. And you know you only have to read a chapter and a half a day to read through the New Testament. Well, maybe even, I forget now if I'm right. I think it's twice a year. Read through the New Testament this year. It will change your life. Or, now we're going to go to level three. <sighs> level three. Or read through the entire Bible this year. One of you, a retired police officer, wrote me on Tuesday night about the through the Bible reading plan you are choosing this year. Bless you, my brother. Have you ever read through the Bible? 
In recent years, I've not been reading Genesis to Revelation in, in a year. What I've been doing is just pretty much whatever I feel like reading, I read. But, but this past year, I got back to, no, I'm going to read through the Bible in a year. And what I've done for years and years and years, whenever I've done that, is at the end of my Bible, there's a blank page, and right there, I write the date that I finished the Bible. And then the next year, there's the date I finished the Bible. And there's the date I finished the Bible. And there's a lot of dates, and it's usually less than a year because it's just so good you can't stop reading sometimes. And you can just go online, find yourself a Bible reading plan. There's lots of them. It'll tell you, read these verses, read those chapters, read a couple of Psalms, you'll be through it in a year. But how about committing to read through the entire Bible this year? Now we're going to go up one level further. This is for the Christian Marines of the church. All right. Any Christian Marines here? How about, because this will really change you, maybe you say, well, I've read through the Bible a bunch of times. I've read through the New Testament. But, all right, here's an idea. How about you pick a chapter of God's Word that you really want to get into and read that chapter every day for a week? So you want to be a better husband? So you read Ephesians chapter 5. Every day for a week. All right, now we're going to leave the Marines and we're going to go to the Navy SEALs of the church. How about, let me just tell you. So I'm a new believer. I'm, I just turned 18. The day my parents dropped me off at Washington Bible College, it was my 18th birthday, August 27, 72. Brand new believer. Didn't know anything about the Bible. I'd memorized John 3:16 and a few other verses. And I got dropped off in a room with four other roommates. Three of them were okay spiritually. One of them was solid. His name is Dan. He's still a good friend of mine. He's a pastor in Cadiz, Kentucky. We saw him at the Outer Banks not long ago. He was at my house not long ago before that. I love Dan. And Dan was a man who read the Word. I would see him over there for literally for like an hour with his Bible open on his bed and he's on his knees and he's reading and praying and reading and praying and reading it. And he told me later, I asked him, what are you doing? He's I'm actually memorizing it and meditating on it. So I started doing that. But he also had this other practice that I thought, I'm going to try that. And I did it for a long time. And that was this. Take a book of the Bible, a short one. Don't take the book of Revelation and do this. Take a book of the Bible and read the entire, this is Navy SEAL level now. Read the entire book every day for a month. By the end of the month, you can close your eyes and use a paper Bible when you do it because the geography adds another dimension that helps you to learn what's going on. And by the end of a month, you can close your eyes and you know where everything is. That's on that page, left-hand side, three-quarters of the way down. You look, yep, right there it is. You really get to know a book by doing that. And here's what I would do. I would read like Ephesians every day for a month. Then I'm going to go on to Philippians every day for a month. Then I'm going to go back and review Ephesians for a few days. Then I'm going to go to Colossians and read it every day for a month. And I just did that, I think, for years. That's going to be, what do we call that? The Navy SEAL level. All right. Join me in one of those levels. Number five, be a doer of the word, not a hearer only deceiving yourself. And number six, help us please to build cornerstone upon God's word. We want this church to be built upon the solid rock of Jesus Christ and his word. So let's judge all things by the word. Let's do all things according to the word. Let's be a people of the word. Amen?
Amen. Thank you for sitting through a longer than intended and very theological message. Bless you people. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your holy word. And we do pray now that people here who have not yet received the love of the word, well, would you give it to them today? May they turn to you that you would be their God. May they bow the knee and confess Jesus is their Lord. And may they receive everlasting life and a love of your truth. Father, may we be a people of the book this year. May more of us learn more of the precious promises that await us in the pages of the book. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.